to your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes and ears to see and to hear what you have for us this morning. Lord, as your spokesperson, my prayer for me is that you would take me out of the way and that you would speak your truth, Father, uh, through my voice. Together, I pray that we would all be blessed by meeting with you. Just be glorified, be honored by all that's said here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The story is told of a missionary to Africa who was visited one day at his hut by one of the village natives whom he had recently befriended. The missionary noticed during the visit that his new friend was intrigued by the solitary light bulb hanging from the hut's ceiling. So he flipped the switch and turned the bulb on, which absolutely amazed his visitor. The visitor then asked if he could have a light bulb for himself, and the missionary, thinking that he wanted it for a souvenir or or trinket, gladly gave an extra bulb that he had had. Sometime later, the missionary returned the favor and visited the native's hut. Upon entering, he noticed the bulb that he had given the native hanging from the hut ceiling from an ordinary string. When the missionary asked about it, his friend expressed disappointment that his bulb didn't work. This in turn prompted the missionary to explain to the native that he had a power source. He had a small generator that produced electricity, which flowed to the bulb and then lit it up. And he went on to explain to his friend that the bulb itself was useless unless it was connected to the power source. You know, as Christians, we're much like that light bulb. We are bright and brilliant when we're connected to our power source, Jesus Christ, but we're useless when we're disconnected from it. So with that as an introduction, I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. If you didn't bring a Bible or you don't have one, raise your hand and we'll put one in your hands and that is yours to keep. John 15 verses 1 through 11. I am the vine, Jesus said, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. As Jesus and his disciples journeyed from the upper room to Gethsemane, which is the context here, they undoubtedly passed by 
several vineyards along the way as viticulture, which is the growing of vine fruit, was one of the common occupations of that day in Palestine. So Jesus, in his customary way of using common everyday items or events to teach profound lessons, chose the analogy of the vine and the branches to teach his disciples how it was that they were to remain rightly related to him after he would leave them. In his teaching here, Jesus spoke of three distinct parts of this very common indigenous plant. First of all, he talked about the vine itself. Secondly, and I find very interestingly, he talked about the dead branches. And lastly, he talked about living branches, and specifically how those living branches are related to the vine, which I believe is at the the heart of this passage and where I intend to land Before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about what Jesus had to say about the vine itself as well as about the dead branches. So let's look at what Jesus had to say about the vine. The first point Jesus made, which is recorded for us in verse 1, is that he is the true vine and that the Father is the vine dresser. Now I'm reading out of the ESV. If you're reading out of the NIV, several other translations actually say gardener here, which I like a lot better because who really knows what a vine dresser is? So Jesus said, I'm the true vine, the Father is the gardener, which considering the context within which it was spoken essentially implies this message, and I guess you could call this the Gordon paraphrase of this verse. I've got something to teach you about how you're to relate to me once I've gone. And I'm going to use all of these vines and their attached fruit that you see here to do so. And to that end, the first thing you need to know is that I am the vine. I am the point of supply. I am the power source. And my father is the gardener, the one who watches over all that you see here. Jesus was saying here that in order for his disciples to be rightly related to them, they must be vitally, dependently connected to him as the power, as the branches are to the vine. Or to use my opening story in the same way that the light bulb is to the power source. And that's because the Father, the gardener, desires that the branches, and here he means Jesus' disciples, bear fruit which will not happen due to human effort, but rather due to the quality of their connection with the vine, a state of being that Jesus calls abiding in him, and we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. So having established himself as the point of supply or power source for his disciples' ongoing relationship with him, Jesus then went went on to talk about the essence of that relationship or what it really means for the living branches to abide in him. But he also had something to say about dead branches, about those branches that do not bear any fruit and appear to be lifeless. So before we consider what Jesus had to say about living branches abiding in him, let's take a minute to look at what he had to say about the dead branches that do not abide in him. First part of verse 2, Jesus said, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Then down in verse 6, If anyone abides, excuse me, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. The big question is, who is Jesus referring to? And what did he mean by they will be taken away 
and thrown into the fire and burned. Well, as I see it, there are three possibilities. The first one is this. He was referring to Christians who do not bear fruit and who have as a result lost their salvation. Now, the problem with this possibility, in my opinion, is that it blatantly contradicts other passages of Scripture that I believe clearly teach the salvation of the true believer is totally secure. And here are some of them. Um, I was going to take the time to, to all have all of us turn to them, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to read through them if that's okay. John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39 say this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Philippians 1.6 says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. And then last but not least, 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, not be pretty sure, not wonder, but that you may know that you have eternal life. So considering all of that biblical support, I reject that option. I do not think that this is what Jesus is saying. I don't think he's talking about Christians who've lost their salvation. So that brings us to option number two, and that is that he was referring to Christians who do not bear fruit and who therefore lose rewards when they stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Now the problem with this possibility, again in my opinion, is that the branches Jesus spoke of here are not just lacking in quantity and or quality. They appear to have no fruit whatsoever. They're dead branches, the kind that wither and are thrown away. And a true Christian would have at least some fruit, even if it's sparse and somewhat underdeveloped. So I don't think that's the right option either. And that brings us to the third option, which is already up there. I don't know how that happened, but it's there. That is Christians, in quotes, who are not really Christians. These are professing Christians who, like Judas, are not genuinely saved. Consequently, they have no fruit, and they are therefore judged. I think this is the most plausible explanation, and I think so in large part because of how soon after his prediction that one of you will betray me, that's John 13, 21, the one whom we know to be Judas, right? That Jesus spoke these words. Judas was with Jesus, and he certainly seemed like a branch. He looked like he was a living branch, but he did not have God's life in him. Therefore, he betrayed his master. And as a result, his destiny was like that of a dead branch. All right. Now that we've considered what Jesus had to say about dead branches, 
we can now look at what I believe is the heart or the focus of this passage, and that's what he had to say about the living branches, his real disciples, and specifically how those living branches are to relate to the vine, that is, to Jesus Christ. In a word, the way that the living branches are to relate to the vine, even in his physical absence, is, as I mentioned earlier, to abide in him. The Greek word that's translated abide, which is used no less than ten times in this passage, is the word meno. And that's a word that means to remain, which is, by the way, if you're reading NIV and several other translations, the way it's actually translated, it means to remain, to, to tarry, to not depart, to endure, or to survive. And I think the essence of the word considering the context within which it's used here, is perhaps captured best in verse 4 in the translation, or I should say the paraphrase, the message, which uses the word meno three times. I'll put it up here on the screen, and we'll look at it together. The word meno is the first word, and he translates it, first of all, live in me. Live in me. Make your home in me just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being, here's the second use of the word meno, joined. Joined to the vine. You can't bear fruit unless you're joined, meno, joined with me. That said, I think when Jesus told his disciples here that as living branches they were to abide in the vine, he was telling them that they were to connect with him as their supply or power source, not some sort of casual connection, but utterly depending on him for their purpose, for their meaning, for their direction, for their very lives. Put very simply, the way that we as Jesus' disciples are to relate to him is by abiding in him or by living in him and depending entirely upon him. That's the basic truth of this passage. But there's more. Throughout the passage, we're given six related truths which further expand our understanding of what it means to abide in Christ. So we're going to really briefly look at those six supporting truths, and then I'll try to bring it all together for a bottom line, okay? First of those truths is this. Abiding in Christ is the only way that we will produce fruit. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. Jesus there says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. I am the point of supply. I am the power source. You are the branches. Or to use our opening story, you are the light bulb. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me... You can do nothing. I mentioned this earlier when I talked about Jesus being the vine, and that is that the spiritual fruit produced in our lives as believers is not a reflection of our industriousness or our ingenuity, but rather of the work of God in us and then through us because of our existence in Christ, because of the quality of connection that we have with him. So what is the fruit that Jesus is talking about here? 
Well, I think we find the answer to that question in verses 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The fruit that Jesus' disciples will produce when they abide in him, and this is important, only when they abide in him, and something that the gardener obviously desires and expects is the fruit of obedience to his commands, which, as Jesus points out, is really nothing other than the outflow of their love for him. He said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Second related truth, abiding in Christ is the key to effective prayer. Jesus said in verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. When we as believers in Jesus Christ abide in him, we are intimately joined to or connected with him and then his presence within us conditions and shapes our minds in such a way that our prayers conform to The Father's will, and when our prayers are in harmony with God's will, the results are certain. Jesus said, it will be done for you. In 1 John 5, 14 and 15, the Apostle John put it this way. This is the confidence we have toward him. Didn't the kids just sing about that? Yeah. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, We know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. But there's a flip side to this. If we are not abiding with Christ and therefore not in tune with his will, we will not necessarily receive what we ask for. Jesus' brother James told us in James 4.3, you ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly. You ask so that you can spend it on your passions. Simply put, Effective prayer is a privilege of abiding in Jesus and therefore being in tune with or in harmony with him. Related truth number three, abiding in Christ is how we bring glory to the Father. In the first part of verse 8, Jesus said, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, which we know comes from abiding in Christ. When we live our lives in obedience to God's word, we bring glory to his holy name. First of all, on just a a private level, a personal level, just in the commitment that we hold in our hearts to his purposes and to his will. But we also glorify God on a public level when we live in obedience to his commands. And that's because when we do so, the holy behavior that the people who are watching, and they are watching, The holy behavior that they see in us draws their attention to the one who has empowered that behavior. And this truth is confirmed by other scriptures as well. For instance, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, this is Matthew 5, 6, Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. And regarding their service of giving to the poor Christians in Jerusalem, Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth. This is 2 Corinthians 9.13. By their approval of the service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. And finally, Peter in his first letter said to the Jews of the the diaspora, 1 Peter 2.12, 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Number four, abiding in Christ is the proof that one is a real disciple of Jesus. After saying in verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, Jesus went on to say, and here's the catchphrase, and so prove to be my disciples. And this is entirely consistent with what he taught his disciples earlier on in his minister ministry. He said in Matthew 7, verses 17 and 18 and 20, that every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So think about this with me for a minute. If those who abide in Christ bear good fruit, and if those who bear good fruit demonstrate that they're genuine believers, then it stands to reason that genuine believers are those who abide in Christ. That is the if A equals B and B equals C, then A also equals C. And you know what that's called? I looked it up because I wanted to appear to be smart, and I just kind of taken care of that, haven't I? This is the transitive property of equality. I should have just said that rather than telling you that I looked it up to try to be smart. That shows you how smart I am. That's right. Giving credit where credit is due, and it's not due to me. Number five, those who abide in Christ will be pruned so as to produce more fruit. In the second half of verse two, Jesus said that every branch that does not that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. This is really just a horticultural picture of the developing and refining that our character undergoes due to the trials and tribulations that we experience. And the reason Paul wrote in Romans 5.3, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why else would he say we rejoice in our sufferings? And the reason why James wrote in James chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That is because those difficult times in our lives, though sometimes very, very painful, are really times of pruning, times of making room in our lives for the growth of even more and even better fruit. Last but not least, the goal of abiding in Christ is fullness of joy. In verse 11, Jesus closed out his thoughts about how his disciples were to relate to him in his absence with these words. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus didn't tell his disciples to abide in him, and therefore produce, thereby produce the fruit of obedience because he wanted to saddle them with some arduous task or burden them with a rigorous test. He did so because he knew that in their abiding in him, in their connecting to or joining with him, in their finding purpose and meaning and life in him, guess what they would find? Great and lasting joy. Put another way, Jesus didn't come to weigh us down. He came to lift us up. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus said this, Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus didn't come only to prevent spiritual death or to give us fire insurance. He came that we may have life and have it abundantly. And this doesn't mean that we'll experience a perpetual state of happiness or excitement when we abide in Christ, and that's because the joy of abiding in Jesus is not in the pleasure of a life at ease. That's coming. That's what we talked about last Sunday. Pastor Larry talked about heaven. That's where that that joy will come from, that giddiness, that pleasure. But it does mean that when we abide in Christ, we will experience the exhilaration of being right with God and of consciously walking in his love and care. So all of that said, what's the bottom line to all of this? What is the take-home? Well, I think it's this. Jesus did not go to the cross that we might hang dull and lifeless from a string. Best case scenario, and please understand I'm being really generous by giving this a best case scenario. That's a picture of defeated Christianity where followers are somehow plugged into Christ but not drawing from him. There's some sort of short circuit there if that's even possible. Worst case scenario, and in my opinion, the more likely scenario, that's a picture of pseudo-Christianity of a faith that's not real at all. It's an image of dead, outside-in religion where people conclude that if they check enough boxes, if they go to church once in a while, if they read their Bibles occasionally, if they follow most of the rules most of the time, and if they pray before meals, you know, that outside stuff, it will somehow seep in and make them right with God. And consequently, they will... Avoid hell. That is not what Jesus died for. And that is not the essence of real faith. Jesus went to the cross and there died in our place for our sins so that we would forevermore be intimately connected with him as our supply or power source, depending entirely on him and consequently finding in him our purpose, our direction, our strength, our joy, our everything. That, my friends, is a picture of living inside-out relationship where Christ followers, out of the power of the Holy Spirit that fills them then flows through them, willfully and joyfully obey their master. This is a description of true believers who find in Christ not merely the avoidance of hell, rather they find their very lives in him. And they shine brilliantly for him as a result. That is the essence of real faith. And just by the way, my picture's not supposed to cover up the words. It didn't come through here right. I just want you to know that. Thank you. That's all theoretical. It's theological, but it's theoretical. Now I'm going to get personal. Don't you love that? Here's the really big question for you all this morning and for me. What are you hanging from? A string or a power cord? That's so important, I'm just going to let that hang with you for a minute. Pun intended. Are you hanging from a string 
or are you hanging from a power cord? If you're hanging dull and lifeless from a string, and, and if you are, you know it, at the very least, and again, understand I'm being very generous here, you're living out a conquered Christianity. You are going through the motions and you're completely missing out on the splendor and the joy of experiencing the life and the power of Jesus Christ abiding in you. You're totally missing it. But more likely, you're living out a pseudo-Christianity, a false faith, because as the bulb itself is useless unless it's connected to the power source, we are dead unless we're connected to Jesus as a branch's dead unless it's connected to the vine. Jesus said it this way in verse 5, apart from me you can do nothing. Nothing. I'm sorry to say, if you're hanging from a string, you've bought into the lie of outside-in religion, and I need to tell you that not only will you find that flat and ultimately unsatisfying, it will not save you. Only having that abiding relationship with Jesus Christ will save you. So abide in him. Don't go through the motions. Abide in Christ. Live in him. Make your home in him. Find your hope in him. Find your strength in him. Find your joy in him. And shine brilliantly for him. Let's pray. Worship team, come on up and join me. Father, Thank you for this clear picture that you've given us in Scripture of what it means to be your follower, your son or daughter. In this day and age, and actually it's been true for all ages, when the deceiver tries to convince us that if we say the right things, if we do some good things and check off the boxes that we're good to go. But first and foremost, that's not what your son died for. And that's not what it means to have a relationship with him. You want us to abide in Jesus and Jesus to abide in us. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. We are nothing. We're dead. We wither and we'll be thrown away. But in him, we'll draw from the power of the creator. We'll find hope and meaning and value. We'll find everything in him. Thank you so much. Help us. If there are those in this place who have been going through motions, bought into the... Outside in religion, Father, I pray that this will be clear. It's time for an inside-out relationship. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all stand and let's worship together.